Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, Pastor Josh continues his series covering the book of Romans. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1 as Pastor Josh delivers his sermon titled, Set Apart for the Gospel, Part 3. chapter 1 verses 1 through 7. Let's, uh, let's read the, the section here, but primarily today we're focusing on verses 5 through 7 and working through the truths that God, God has for us there. So beginning in verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Please bow with me and let's ask for our God's help. Oh Lord, right now, as we open your living word, Father, there is um, great things that could happen or nothing that could happen. Nothing in the sense that we be bored or uninterested, unconcerned, prideful, so wrapped up in ourselves that, Father, we're just not submitting to you and not bowing to you. But God, I'm just begging that that will not take place. God, I'm, I'm begging that you will come and do the miracles that your word does in the hearts of those who submit to you, in the hearts of those who believe. God, you tell us your word is always accomplishing. It's sharp. It's always cutting in some way. It's always doing something. But God, we know you're going to get glory in the end, even by those who rebel against your word, despise your word, and have hardened hearts towards it, because in the end, you will be shown to be victorious and glorious over all of your enemies. But God, that's not what we want. God, we want to give you glory this morning by seeing who you are, knowing your truths, worshiping you, rejoicing in you, loving your word. And so God, I, I ask with what we're going to see today, with the truths that you have for us, God, we beg, show us things we've never seen before and bring us to feel the weight like we never have before. Bring us, God, to, to rejoice in, in the gift of salvation, in the work of Christ, Lord, in a way that is that we have never seen it before. And God, I pray for all of your sons and daughters, those who have repented of their sins, trusted in Christ to be saved, please make this a day that we're pierced and we're grown, we're convicted and strengthened and encouraged. But God, any in this room that up until this moment, they have rebelled against you and resisted salvation. I just beg God that you'll win in this time, that you'll melt their hardened hearts, 
and bring them to faith in Christ. Help me, God, to preach and all that that means. Protect me, enable me, give grace. And all of us, oh God, who are here to receive your word, please bless. Please protect this service, oh God. Glorify your name. We ask it through Christ. Amen. Once upon a time, the prince of a kingdom was looking for a bride. Now this was no... Kendall sissy prince. Okay, this was a bearded, burly, masculine, carrying a sword kind of prince. I want you imagining the right thing here, okay? The prince searched within the gates of the royal city, seeing all the beautiful young ladies, many who longed to be the queen, the wife of the prince, and he considered them. But the prince then walked outside the gates. He walked into the impoverished sections of the kingdom the broken, run-down projects. And there he saw a young woman living homeless, living in filth, smelling of filth, living a life of disregard for herself and foolishness. As the the prince looked on this woman, he felt compassion. He felt a longing to show mercy. And he said to his nobles, this is her, this is who I want to marry. Well, the nobles taken back, they pulled the prince to the side. They began to try to reason with him. Now, prince, now think this through here. First of all, we just checked her criminal record. There's a warrant out for her arrest. She's a thief. The prince said, I'll serve her prison sentence in her place. In fact, this will be great. This will help win her heart to want me and love me. And the nobles thought, oh, okay, no, no, no. Think, think about this. She's not worthy. I mean, if she doesn't want you already for for who you are, if she's not interested already, then she's not worthy for you. She's not living in a way that is befitting what it means to be queen. He said, I can make her worthy. Prince, she's living in filth. She's unclean. He said, I can make her clean. They said, don't you want someone whose character is befitting what it means to be your bride? Don't you want someone who will appreciate all of this? He said, I can love her so that I help form her character. I can help her to see the glory of what she will be getting. See, I I don't just want to deliver out of poverty. I don't just want to make her my bride. I want to give her the kingdom. I, I, I want to bring her into all that it means, all of the glory of receiving a kingdom with me. Friends, as we've been working through these early verses of the book of Romans, we've been seeing how the gospel sets us apart and how the gospel brings us into all of the fullness of all of the goodness that God wants to give. As the Holy Spirit here has been speaking through Paul in these early verses, we, we today begin to see the emphasis of what this book is about begin to show in the glory of the gospel, the power of the gospel, and, and the grace that God is giving in the gospel. We saw in the early verses that the gospel has given us a new identity. We saw last Sunday who the gospel is about, the subject of the gospel, that it is about Christ And this week we begin to see, what God does here is give kind of a quick summation of the grace of the gospel. So we said that there are three main points that we've outlined in the first seven verses. Uh, The identity, 
the subject of the gospel. Today we come to this, this part that I've, I've titled um, the, amaz- the gospel's amazing privileges. Maybe another way of saying that is what God gives when he gives salvation. Or maybe another way, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. God has come to an unworthy people and lavished grace. This grace is the grace of the gospel purchased by the blood of Christ and brought to us, applied to us at the moment of conversion. So if you're taking notes with us and you've been tracking thus far, today's will be point number three in this section, the gospel's amazing privileges. There'll be six sub points underneath these. I'll give them to you as you go. The very first one we're going to see is we have received grace. Look at verse five with me again. And look at just that first phrase. He just got done talking about Christ and he says, through whom we have received grace. When God saves a soul, what does he give to that new son or daughter? Well, there's a long list. There's no place in the scripture that God like has this chapter. He says, here's all the things that God gives. Various places in the scripture, especially the New Testament, will sort of give a few here and a few there. And there are some listed here in this first section. You know, as children, when we first come to know the gospel, we focus on kind of just the most basic. God saves me from hell, gives me heaven. But there's so much more And God wants us to come to know the fullness of what he has done for you in Christ, what he is doing right now, and then the hope of the future, the glory of what is to come. In fact, there are even places in the New Testament where the apostles are praying for believers. And, and, and by the way, you know, we're, we're so tempted to pray for the wrong things all the times. You know, we're tempted to pray for all these kinds of earthly things. You know, I, I want to have a nice life, nice, comfortable, rich, comfortable kind of life. When we see the scripture telling us what to pray for, there's a priority. There's always this big, weighty reason. When the apostles pray for believers in the New Testament, we see this repeated pattern of a, a prayer that believers would come to know the surpassing riches of what we have in Christ. Paul in Ephesians prays for those believers and and he's praying. He says, I want you to come to know the glory of the inheritance of what is to come. Why? Like of all the things that could be prayed for, why, why come pray that we would grow in this knowledge of the riches of the inheritance of what is to come? Friends, the more you come to know, understand, and feel the weight of what God has done for you in Christ, what he is doing for you, and the glory of what is to come, you will never be the same. It is a perspective-changing, gratitude-creating, zeal-producing thing to see the depths of what God saved you out of. That's why you need sermons on hell. What God is bringing you into, that's why you need sermons on heaven and the kingdom to come. And when we see these things, this is a transforming effect. Friends, have you met the Christians who they are so filled with zeal that just, you know, it just oozes out of them. They live lives set apart for the gospel. They do it with gladness. How do you get that? 
coming to see the glory of what God has done for us and what he is doing for us in Christ. Um, in study for this week, I started to make a list. Okay, what are the specific gifts that God has given, is giving, and is going to give us in Christ? I got to 44, and it's all I could think of at the time. I know there are more, but even with that list, all right, so 44 specific graces that God has given, but to think about the weight of that, here's just one, just one item on the list. We are receiving a kingdom. A kingdom. That's one item. I can think of no less than nine chapters of the Bible that give us some kind of help in picturing what this kingdom is going to be like. When Christ returns, all of the enemies of God are subdued beneath his feet, made a footstool. When the curse is lifted, sin is abolished, believers are glorified. God remakes this earth however he is doing that and we live here on this earth with Christ visibly reigning and we live out body and soul in the fullness of joy on this earth but it's heaven and earth brought together the kingdom of heaven on earth and I think it's good to use some sanctified imagination of what that will be like. Life in the kingdom of heaven on earth. That's just one item on this list and there are at least 43 more specific graces that God has given in the gospel. Guys, this is crazy. God has not merely saved you from hell. It's not merely delivered out of flames and into a life like this one. He is literally giving the greatest, the best of what the omniscient God can imagine. And so that's why places in the New Testament will say things like Ephesians 1, in Christ, God is giving to us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Places like Romans 8 will say it like this, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So what all is God giving when he gives to us salvation? When you get Christ, you get it all. And a simple way that the Bible sums that up is God has given us grace. God has given us grace. When scripture speaks of the grace we receive in salvation, that's a, that's a general way of saying all of these things, all of the lavishing of God's goodness on his people. Now, everybody gets grace from God. Jesus said that when the sun shines, that's kindness from God, even on his enemies. When the rain falls, that's God's kindness, even on those who hate him. By the way, parenthesis there, does that help us in understanding some things like complaining? Everybody receives grace, even unbelievers. But there is a special lavishing of grace on to those who repent and believe on Christ. Salvation is a special kind of grace. It is the greatest grace that can be given. Friends, you know, we're tempted to get bitter in trials. Like you ever go through a season where, uh, or an event, it's not going well, maybe you get a little bitter in your heart and you're being like, sure doesn't feel like God loves me right now. 
Where's all this Romans 8, 28 stuff? Where's the good? Where's the blessing? Where's the favor of God? Sometimes we can be convinced that God loves us, but we're not quite sure he likes us, okay? You ever get there where you're just sort of feeling in these kinds of ways? Listen, listen, in those moments, when we do that, we're judging God's, we're judging God's care for us. We're judging God's attitude for us. We're judging God's love for us, judging his grace, judging his countenance toward us based on earthly priorities. And we're failing to remember that in Christ, we have been given the greatest grace that can possibly exist. Jesus bled. The father gave his son. Jesus endured the agony, torment, torture, wrath of God on the cross, spilt his blood in order to deliver you and I from the torments of hell, not just bring you into an eternal life that's like this one, but to bring you into the fullness of God's joy, to bring you into a kingdom of everlasting goodness. There is nothing you can ever imagine that would be better than that. We sometimes evaluate God's blessing on us with wrong kinds of priorities, thinking about now rather than the glory of what God has already given and what he has promised us in Christ. Friends, if God gave you the option, got an option here. On the one hand, you could have $100 billion. You can be the greatest Rock star, quarterback, CEO, whatever your fantasy is there. And I'll give you a lifetime, scratch that. I'll give you 10 lifetimes of unlimited fleshly indulgence. Or you can have a life filled with suffering now, but salvation in Christ. You would be insane to not choose Christ. And friends, sometimes we get that backwards. Sometimes we're thinking about God's blessing. He's like, if God really liked me, if I really had his favor, then everything would go well. God has already given you what is most precious to him. He gave his son. Jesus gave his life. This is the grace of salvation. And friends, what's crazy is the world is filled with those who are picking not 10 lifetimes of all of this earthly pleasure, but just one lifetime of normal fleshly indulgence, normal life. But such were you and I at one time. Christian, never forget that God has already given you the greatest grace that can exist. That's, that's why later on uh, in Romans 5, this sort of logic will be applied. If God has given his son, there is nothing he will withhold you from you. There is no good thing that God is not going to supply you with now and no good grace that he's not going to give you in the glory to come. He has already given Christ. God has already promised you it's sealed in blood, a lavishing of grace. Never doubt his love for you. Never doubt his grace for you in Christ. Never doubt that he likes you in Christ. And we see this 
in the lavishing of God's grace. We have received grace and there is an infinite amount of grace yet to come. That point basically introduces the rest of what he's going to say here in the amazing grace poured out on us. This section will give kind of a quick summation of that. And throughout the rest of the book, this will keep being explained further, especially kind of the the highlight coming when we come to chapter eight. So we have received grace. Well, here's the second part, letter B. Paul says we received apostleship. Now, Paul talked about his apostleship earlier in verse one. There's a reason why he brings it up again here in this verse. It's because of what he's gonna say soon after in verse six. We'll get there here, get there here in just a second. Before we leave this point, look at verse five, the way it's worded. So he says, we received apostleship. I believe he's speaking about his apostleship here to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. Paul mentions numerous times that his ministry was primarily the apostle to the Gentiles. And consider that phrase that he uses there, to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. You are saved by faith. That is one of the highlighted points that this book is going to bring out uh, again and again. It's one of the major points of the book. It is salvation by grace alone through faith in Christ alone. No works added, nothing that you can do to add to this. But God saves you by faith, but doesn't intend for you to stay in the baby pool of Christianity. He intends for you to move on to the obedience that faith is meant to take you somewhere, that faith is meant to take you into greater depths of devotion to him. In fact, Jesus will say, if you do not go on to obedience, it's proof that you never genuinely had faith. You might think of it like this, that first moment of you turning to Christ, that first moment where you submitted and trusted to Christ, it's kind of like you're sitting in a canoe and you're, you're, you're docked there on the bank of the river. You've been scared to push off into the current of the river. But finally, you, you decide, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust God. This is what he's calling me to do. You push off into the current of the river. If you're in the river, it is taking you somewhere. If you're heading nowhere, if you're not heading on to obedience, then what it shows is you've never pushed off into faith to begin with. No, you're not saved by any works or any amount of obedience. There's, there's not a certain amount that you got to get to before, before God will accept you. The moment that you trust him, you're made right with him, forgiven of sins. But the current of that river is to take you somewhere. A disconnect between faith and obedience is as inconsistent as a man who says he's a bodybuilder but never works out. One's just saying things with your lips. Faith will bring us onto obedience or it is a dead faith, James will say. And then letter C, finishing out verse five there. He says, the work of the gospel is to bring the Gentiles to the obedience of faith. Notice, notice those last four words. For his name's sake. What God has done in saving you, lavishing grace on you, he has done for his own glory. Now in four words there, this is amazing how the Bible does this all the time. In four words, God just gave you theology that needs at least 30 minutes of explanation. 
I don't have 30 minutes right now. I'm trying to keep the flow of thought together. And, and I think we're going to need to do this numerous times throughout the book of Romans because the Bible is just so amazing this way. In just a short phrase, bam, here is all of this theology just explained. We're going to come back next Sunday and do a doctrinal study. It's the plan, unless God changes my mind this week. Doctrinal study on, on just this phrase right here, for his namesake. Because from Genesis to Revelation, there is a theme that rose through the Bible here in showing us God wants you to know why he does what he does. When we don't know why he does what he does, we put ourselves at the top of the list of the why. We make ourselves arrogant and puffed up. God tells us why he does what he does, and it is beautiful, and I cannot wait until next Sunday already when we study through those things. So for now, God does what he does for his name's sake, so that all will see and worship him for his grace. So letter D, you also are the called of Jesus Christ. So read, read verse six, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. What does he mean by this language of called here? Because we know the Bible uses this word in several different ways. Um, there are times where the Bible will talk about the general call to salvation, like Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other. God gives that call to all of the earth. That's a general call to salvation. We know that there's a special call that God gives an individualized Holy Spirit coming to you, calling you by name kind of calling. We'll get to that later on in Romans. There's a call to ministry. So what's he referring to here? Which of these ways? Well, what is talked about in verse five? Look at it there. Paul talks about his call to salvation and his call to apostleship. And then in verse six says, you are too. You are too. This is talking about the overall calling to Christ, which encompasses friends, all three of these, the general call, the effectual call and the call to ministry. Christian, you are called to apostleship. Now, that can be a little confusing because didn't we say in verse one, there are no more apostles, okay? We said that was a temporary office, a temporary title. So how are we to understand this? Well, there were those that God designated who had an official office of authority called apostles. But do you know who also the New Testament calls apostles? He also calls Jesus an apostle. Why is he called an apostle? Because the word means sent one. And Jesus is the sent one from heaven by the Father. And you are a sent one as well, Christian. There is a way that you are not an apostle like Paul is an apostle. Sorry if you got excited there. Not an apostle like Paul's an apostle. Okay, just like we said last week, you are not a son of God like Jesus is the son of God. But there is a way that you are sent out by God. There is a way that you have a ministry commissioning on you. You do not have the office of apostleship, but you do have the ministry of apostleship. Friends, there is no one who is converted who is not also commissioned. In the kingdom, nobody is um, a bench warmer. We're not supposed to be anyway. Everybody's put in. Everybody's given a role. We're all got different kinds of gifts, all kinds of different kinds of roles, but we're all put in and told to go. Spurgeon said every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. 
That might be slightly overstating it, but I agree with his sentiment. Part of what it means to be a Christian, and, and I challenge you to look for this in your Bible reading. He, he is here as a part of talking about what it means to be a Christian. Look for what Jesus says in the Gospels. Part of what it means to be a Christian is to take part in the making of other Christians, to be a fisher of men. If we're going to follow Jesus, it does imply that we do the things that Jesus did. Jesus puts a heavy emphasis on this work of ours of helping others to become Christians. If we're going to follow him, then that means we follow him in obedience, in holiness, in love, and in this work of making Christians. So I'm not saying that if you are not right now at this season of your life, if you are not actively making disciples that you can't be a Christian. I'm not saying that. Everybody's in different places of growth. But I think we are saying that there is a calling that is being ignored if we are not participating in this. And the same way that scripture will say, if you are not holy, you're either holy or an imposter. Well, not everybody's there yet. Some of us are just pushing off the canoe and making our way down the stream. But this is what you're called into. The same as being a loving person. This is what we're called into. This is the path where God is taking us. Pushing off from the bank is deciding to go down the current of what it means to be a follower of Christ. If you are called to Christ, you are a sent out one and you are set apart for the gospel. You also are the called of Jesus Christ. And then here's the letter E coming down to verse seven. Read that first part with me to all who are beloved of God in Rome. This was spoken to the Christians in the city of Rome. It obviously applies to every Christian, you who are in Christ. You who have heard the message of the gospel. You have turned from rebellion, trusted in Christ, called out to him to be saved. You are loved of God. You are an object of God's saving love. Now, as you hear that, here's a question that could pop into your head. You could say, well, pastor, you know, that's, that's nice. Thanks for telling me that. I feel a little better. But um, doesn't God love everybody? So, I mean, what's the big deal about God loving me if he loves everybody? D.A. Carson wrote a helpful little book on this subject if you want to check out sometime. I think it's called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. But here's what scripture shows. Yes, God does have a general kind of love, care for, and kindness that he gives to every person, and that includes unbelievers, okay? Uh, one of the really easy ones there, John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. In Ezekiel, God says that he takes no delight in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked should turn and live. So we got that. You probably expected that. But here's a part that maybe you don't know about in Scripture. Psalm 5.5, if you want to turn there and maybe jot down to look at later to make sure I'm not lying to you. Psalm 5.5, listen to the language that Scripture uses here. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. Listen to Psalm 11.5, maybe that verse was a fluke. Psalm 11, verse 5 
The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Friends, we could keep going. You may not have heard that one in your kids' Sunday school class growing up, and there's a reason. It's not convenient. It doesn't fit in the little box that sometimes people want to shove God into and tell him you're supposed to behave like this, how I tell you to. So how do we put these things together? Well, friends, God does have a general love, a general care for, a kindness that he shows to everyone, even to the wicked who reject him. But friends, you also need to know that God has a wrath. God has an anger. God has a just and righteous kind of hatred towards the wicked who resist him. Both can exist at the same time, right? You, you and I are finite creatures and we're capable of loving someone and being furious with them at the same time. We're dust mites before God. God is infinite. God is capable of having a general kind of creator's love for anyone, everyone, a care, a, de a desire for their good, and at the same time have wrath and a fury over their sin, a disgust over their wickedness. And so God shows grace to all. God has a creator's love for every soul, but this is the point. There is a greater grace. There is a special grace. There is a special love that God sets on his people. Christian, you who are confident that you are in Christ, before you were even created, God started loving you. God set his love on you before you were made. The Bible says that God knew you even before you were born. He designed you in his mind. He began to love you even in eternity past. God chose to work in your life. God chose to put you in a situation where the gospel came to you. God chose to pour out grace on you. God chose to send his Holy Spirit to come to you to do like, like we saw this past Wednesday night in Acts 16 when God came to Lydia and opened her heart to take heed to the gospel. You are loved by God. That love began with him. Initiating this first John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. Friends, like that opening illustration I used of the prince seeking for a bride. God doesn't love you because of your attractiveness. God doesn't love you because of any amount of uh, religious good works that you've done. He doesn't love you because you're just so awesome. He just can't live without you. He doesn't swoon or, or he didn't fall in love with you. He chose to set his love on you. That's, that's what we mean by when we say that God's love for us is a gracious love. It's a, it's a love that comes out of grace. If that makes sense, we don't love God out of grace. We love God because he's worthy. He is worthy of all worship, all affection. He is worthy for all angels, all demons, all humanity to bow and cry out to him that Jesus is Lord. He is worthy of love. And part of what the Bible is telling us when God sets his love on us, it's an act of grace that is not deserved. So yes, God loves everyone in a general kind of way, kind of like I'm supposed to love my neighbor, which is everyone I come into contact with, but I will never love anybody from the community as much as I love my wife or with the same kind of love as I love my wife. Nobody's getting that kind of passionate love but her. 
And the same was with my kids. They only get my fatherly, protective kind of love and an intensity of love. The love that I have for my family is a greater love and it's of a different nature than what I have for everyone else. Friends, God has a general love for creation, but there is a special kind of love with a special kind of intensity, and it's a special nature of love that he has for his people. It is a love whereby he gives all of the best to us. Christian, the love of God is set on you. You are beloved of God. In Christ, you're in covenant with God. He has promised loving kindness on you now. His loving kindness is going to continue through the rest of your life. He's never going to remove it. His loving kindness is promised to you, resting on you throughout the rest of this life and then into eternity future. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He came to us when we were not lovely. He comes to the unlovely, sets his love and transforms them into lovely. Friends, you, you and I, Believers are in a process of God transforming us, making us into what is lovely. But we're not there yet. You've been saved, Christian, not because you deserve it, not because you're worthy, not because you earned it. You've been saved by grace. This is what is meant by grace. It's undeserved. It's unmerited. Look over with me for just a quick second to chapter four of Romans. I know we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit here, but there is a point that we need to see. Defining terms even at the beginning is helpful. Look at chapter four. Let's read the first five verses there. And this is going to be important for what I'm going to share with you in the next sub point here. So start in verse one, Romans four, verse one. What then shall we say that Abraham, there's a biblical example. Our forefather according to the flesh is found. For if Abraham was justified by works, He has something to boast about, but not before God. The argument being made here is we are saved by faith and not by works. Abraham is used as an example. Verse three, for what does the scripture say? We're now quoting Genesis 15. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Verse four, now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due, meaning this, it's not grace if you earn it. You go to job, you go to your job, you earn a paycheck, that's not grace, that's wages, that's what is due. When God is using the word grace here, this is something that is unmerited, undeserved, a gift. Verse five, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. It will be one of the biggest points that this book makes. Multiple chapters will be spent fleshing this out. You can never be right with God based on your performance, your law keeping, how religious you are, how attractive you are, how golden your heart is, how many religious things you try to add in. You can never give enough, do enough, be awesome enough to earn or be worthy of salvation. Salvation comes as a gift of God's grace. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. 
So it's important that we see this in connection with God's love. It's also important that we see this in, in light of the next subpoint here. So here's letter F. And this is the last one we're looking at today. Uh, so back in Romans 1, look at verse 7 there. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints. Let me point out several things from this statement here. So the subpoint is, in Christ, you are called saints, called to be saints, called as saints. First thing I want to do here is I don't like to have to spend time on this. Uh, I'd rather just roll into what it means, but there is a certain amount of deconstruction that has to happen here because this word saint is used wrongly. Many of you may come out of backgrounds where when you hear the word saint, you're thinking something you were taught and it's not what the Bible teaches. So we got to do a little tearing down some walls in order to build up truth here. You've heard the word saint. You've heard the word saint used. You've probably heard people from history called saints. And what's meant by that kind of usage is they have reached some kind of special status as a Christian. So the um, Eastern Orthodox Church, the Oriental Orthodox Church, the Anglican Communion, and the Roman Catholic Church all have a process whereby certain individuals that they judge to be holy enough reach some special status where they get called a saint. These groups keep a list of their saints. Some of them call it the canonization. Some call it glorification. I really do believe Jesus would call it abomination. These groups keep a list of their saints and it goes even further into even to more disturbing things. Because there's not only a list of these supposed special people, but I just showed you that the scriptures teach. Salvation comes by grace. There is no earning of it. You are not going to get to the day of judgment and everybody have scales where God puts good works on one side, bad works on another side, and God's seeing which one weighs out. It will not be like that. You receive complete pardon, forgiveness, cleansing, acceptance, eternal life in one moment. You get all of it at the moment of turning to trust in Christ. There are no scales and no weighing that goes on. But these groups who do the saints, and particularly the Roman Catholic Church, specifically have this set up. They teach that these saints tipped their scales so highly that they have all these good works they don't need. And so God took all these extra good works they don't need and he put them in a box in heaven. The box is called the treasury of merit. And we got just the deal for you, friends. Every so many years, usually when the church is needing money, the Pope will issue this declaration you can come and buy some of the good works of the saints. What a smoking deal. You give us some of your money and voila, here you go. Good works of the saints counted to you to tip your scales and you will get fewer years off of the imaginary purgatory if you will just give us all of this money. There you go, buying your salvation. Friends, in light of what you see in scripture, does it not make you want to puke? Can you not see the greed? Can you not see the false religion? Can you not see the lying? Can you not see? This is not a light thing. This is why we speak of these things. It's not okay. 
This is what Jesus condemned when he said they teach his doctrines, the precepts of men. And so in light of that, do you see that verse seven here? Look at it with your own eyes. I don't want to tell you this is the Baptist way of looking at it. This is scripture. This is God. With your own eyes, do you see all believers are called saints? If you are loved of God, you are called to this. There's not a special status of Christians. My friends, that includes preachers, missionaries, pastors, evangelists, none of this. In fact, you'll see scripture speak against the venerating of humans. You'll see apostles in the book of Acts have someone bow down to them and they say, stop it. I'm just a man. The venerating of humans to a special kind of status is opposed to scripture. There is a level ground at the foot of the cross that includes all church leaders, missionaries, even the, the Billy Grahams and the John the Baptist. We are still on the same status as Christian called as saints. And so what does it mean? We're called a saint. It's easy to get so wrapped up in what it doesn't mean that we sometimes neglect what it does mean. God teaches something amazing here. The word saint means holy one. The word for holy in Greek is hagios. The word for saint is hagios. It's the same root word, just the suffix added to it. This is what you are called in Christ. A holy one. You've been made holy. You've been set apart to God, like under the old covenant, when objects would be consecrated, they would be sprinkled with blood in a symbolic act that dedicated them to God, set apart, other than. Christian, you have been set apart unto God. You've been declared holy. You have been sprinkled by the blood of Christ. You've been dedicated unto God. You know, under that old covenant, there was a whole list of things that were holy. We had all that section in the end of Exodus in the book of Leviticus. There were objects that were holy and could not be touched by the common people. There was furniture for the temple that was holy. The temple itself was holy. Remember that holy place, that room? It was so holy that only a Levite entering for a specific job was allowed to walk into that room. And then there was the most holy place, a room that was so holy, dedicated unto purity to God that only one man one day a year was allowed to enter and not without blood. Objects like the Ark of the Covenant were so holy that there were times men died from profaning it by reaching out to touch something that was holy. In this new covenant, all those things are gone. They no longer exist. Do you know what the only thing spoken of as on earth that is still holy is. It's Christians. It's, it's the church, not buildings, not this building. It's, it's God's people. Christians are called holy. And so the significance of the New Testament calling you a holy one means this. With the same fear and trembling that people treated the holy objects under the law, we should have towards sinning in these bodies that have been set apart unto God. This is why 1 Corinthians 6 will, will say that your body is not your own. You do not belong to yourself. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. This is who you are in Christ. And friends, later on in this book, huge points will be made to show you this. 
We must see this as our identity. You who are in Christ are no longer just sinners. Now, don't misunderstand me. We still sin. We are still sinners. But that is no longer our primary identity. Our primary identity is that of belonging to Christ. If we keep sinner as the primary identity of our lives, guess how we'll live? But with us seeing that we have been called into something and God has given you a new identity. You are sons and daughters of the living God. You are purified, cleansed, made new. You're new creatures in Jesus Christ. You are called as saints. All of this new identity, what it will begin to do is we'll raise our standards. We'll raise our expectations of ourselves. We will decreasingly settle for the defilement of sin and increasingly strive on to obedience. Christian, in Christ, you have a lot of titles. This is one of them. Make it one that sticks in your brain. Make it one whereby you begin to see yourself in this way. You are someone who has been set apart unto God. Let us live like it. Christian, you're a recipient of grace. You are loved of God. Live like it. Live like it. Be holy. Live as someone who feels the gratitude of the lavish grace that has been poured out on you and live like someone who knows you are loved by God. You know, sometimes we get to thinking that it's more holy for me to slump my shoulders and, and slumber along through life, hating myself because of feeling the guilt of my sin. Jesus didn't save you to feel like that. He, he pardoned you of your guilt. He cleansed you of your sin. And part of what Hebrews says is he's cleared your conscience to live as someone who knows you're loved by God. Live like you are a recipient of grace. And friends, if anything we've looked at today has been helpful, if you feel in your heart a deeper gratitude for your salvation, you're starting to see why it is so critical that we understand our salvation as Christians. You don't know who you are without it. And to you who have not turned to be saved, maybe even this is the first time you've heard of this kind of stuff. Maybe even this language <laughs> freaks you out a little bit. This preacher keeps saying the word saved all the time. I'm used to people making fun of that kind of thing. All I know to say is, friends, who cares what any celebrity or pope or preacher or Jim Bob at work says? All that matters is what God says. And if you will pick up his word, if you will pick up his scriptures, you will see from cover to cover God calling out to the earth. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Acts 2.40, be saved from this perverse generation. This language is there all the time calling you to say there is something that you need. Your sins have made you unclean before God. You are unfit for the kingdom of heaven. Your sin is rebellion against Christ. You've broken God's law. You are guilty. And the whole reason why Jesus came was to go to the cross in order to deal with your greatest problem. And your greatest problem is your sin. 
Jesus shed his blood to pay for sin, took the wrath of God upon himself, died in the place of those who will come to him raised from the dead. But you don't get the benefits of that just because. Just because you're here. I'm really glad you're here about this way. But being here doesn't save you. Just praying doesn't save you. Religious deeds do not save you. I really like it when people give. That doesn't save you. Trust in Christ. Turn from your rebellion. Push off from the bank. Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in Him. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And Scripture says if you reject this gift that God has given you, how can you escape His wrath? Believe on the Lord Jesus. Turn to Him. And if you want somebody to talk to about that, after the service, this is kind of our general way of doing it. I'm going to close prayer just from right here. I'll mosey my way to the back there. If you want to talk to somebody about this kind of thing, want somebody to pray with, don't leave before you're confident that you have turned to and trusted in Christ. Let's pray. God in heaven, Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love to us. Lord, we Christians in the room right now feel so much gratitude, so much affection, so much love for you. But God, we recognize there was a time that we were completely disregarding you. And you in grace came to us. You've brought us to yourself. We rejoice in that. Father, I pray that we will now live as a people of gratitude who make the gospel known. Make us to be a people who live holy, who live worship, who take part in the work of the gospel. And Father, I pray for any, Lord, that has not yet trusted in Christ. Please, God, I, I pray today would be one of the most miserable days of their life of conviction and guilt and weighing on them, not because we enjoy their discomfort, but because they need you. Please, God, make them to know that they need you. Please give grace on us, O oh Lord. We love you. We pray these things through the name of Christ. Amen. Lord bless you. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed Pastor Josh LaGrange's sermon titled Set Apart for the Gospel, Part 3. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter at True Vine IND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.